Hello, and welcome to Edible Ocean. I'm Edith, Professor Tony's audio and production assistant. I am recording this intro straight into my iPad because I had a bit of a tech malfunction, so sorry for the sound quality in this first couple minutes. It'll be fixed for next time. This is the third in an accidental series and the fifth episode of this podcast. So for our third episode, we welcomed Mike McDermott of OceanWise. And the second episode in this little series featured Curtis Hain, the Canada Program Director of the Marine Stewardship Council. Today, we are happy to welcome world-renowned Professor Daniel Pauly to our podcast. He presents a different view of eco-labeling and consumer responsibility that contrasts with those presented by Mike McDermott and Curtis Hain. And since that became a larger part of the conversation between him and Tony, it made sense to feature that contrasting view here to give a scope of the diversity of thought on the issue and to complement the previous two episodes. He is the project leader of the Sea Around Us project at the Institute for Fisheries and Oceans at the University of British Columbia. And in February 2023, he was the co-recipient of the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. His groundbreaking work has informed fishery sciences for decades, and he has written several books and hundreds of academic papers. So, without any further ado, let's hear it. Professor Daniel Pauly, interviewed by Professor Tony Winson. Thank you very much. Very happy that Dr. Daniel Pauly has agreed to uh, be on our podcast today. And um, welcome to Edible Oceans, Dr. Pauly. Yeah, thank you. Yes, very, really our pleasure to have you here. You have a a very extensive and long record of doing research in fishery science. I I wonder if you could, Dr. Pauly, try to answer a, a rather difficult question, I'm sure, but could you try to give us a general audience some idea of the state of global fisheries today? Yeah and the main issues we are facing, and and perhaps discuss the concept of fishing down the food chain? Yes. Now, <clears throat> um, I studied in Germany, uh, you know, study fishery science and zoology in Germany, and I <clears throat> was employed in, uh, at first in uh, Indonesia, and then in, uh, in the Philippines, with, but uh, in a center that was uh, had a global mandate, uh, so I traveled a lot, <clears throat> and I could see that the the problem of fishery scientists in the developing world were the same. They had <clears throat> the 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 fish uh, have cannot be aged. You cannot determine the age of the fish so readily by, from the ear bones as can be done in in uh, in cold countries in where there is a strong winter summer difference. Oh, I so yeah. I. I developed method to uh, circumvent that problem, and I also mm, made available uh, through a database called FishBase that was a big, is a big success. Uh, the data on fish that were locked in various scientific papers and uh, in, in thousands of scientific papers, and this is available on the web now, and uh, is very useful to colleagues. <clears throat> in the process, I discovered that. Uh, overfishing is widespread and <clears throat> that fisheries cannot be understood uh, as we did before as a, a collection of simple of, of, of local stories 
each fishery was under is is uh, a certain fish exploited by by using a certain gear by a group of people fishers and each of them was a, a, a studied individually like a the production of a farm or something yes, but yes. Uh, actually uh, altogether they they generate a system and such system have their own rules like the weather system or the banking system which are global and uh, something that happens in a system in a in a part in a given part of a system reverberates uh, influence uh, what happens in the other parts they are not independent like farms or something mm-hmm. so I, I could see that overfishing in in certain countries triggers overfishing in other countries because <clears throat> the boats can move from one place to the other. Uh, people uh, um, often say, "Oh, fish know no borders; they they travel everywhere." And so, uh, actually, this is not true. Fish don't travel everywhere, and they, they, they have borders. It's the it's the boats that don't have borders yes, and that yes. travel everywhere, and uh, that can fish uh, from the Arctic to the tropics to Antarctica and and they do that uh, especially the, the the big vessels of of that of distant water fleets from a few countries including uh, European countries and China and so on so <clears throat> I um, I've seen the effects of of this system of fishing of uh, and uh, its expansion uh, uh, throughout uh, my career and I have described it, uh, among other things, as uh, a system that fish fishes down the food web, meaning that uh, every 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 fisher, will, when they if they can, will concentrate on big big fish because they they fetch better prices, and then uh, right, the right. big fish uh, reproduce more slowly than the small fish, so they will disappear under fishing pressure. Then then you have the medium-sized fish, and then you go after, finally you go after the small fish. This <clears throat> effect of, of losing the big fish is very pronounced. And in fact, we have lost so many big fish that <clears throat> now uh, young fishers don't know them, and um, they claim that, that they never existed, uh, or never existed in, in abundances, the, in the abundances that are reported in historical record. So, so that's that is, in a nutshell, the story of uh, that I experienced. Uh, I I uh, I try to enable, empower colleagues in the the global south to to meet the challenge of of understanding and and regulating fisheries. But uh, this is difficult for them because the con- their country is uh, weak politically, and these enormous fleets that roam the ocean are. Politically strong, and can force they, they can force their way into 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 the, the coastal area and compete against poor fishers that cannot go very far, and and so they, the fisheries uh, global fisheries are permanent conflict between industrial uh, fishery in, industrial fishing and and uh, artisanal fishing uh, and, and and even even. Uh, 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 subsistence fishing uh, in in the coastline of, of various uh, countries of the global south. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think you've done a, a really great job of, of discussing that concept. Um, is there a like, specific example you could give, or, or one or two, of, of areas that have been particularly impacted by global fishing fleets? I'm sure there's several. Well, global fishing fleets, uh, they roam, and uh, they, everywhere they, they roam the ocean, and everywhere they, they, uh, they see a concentration they wiped out a concentration of fish. I think the best example um, of, uh, of, a, of a huge fishery resource uh, being annihilated by modern industrial fishing is uh, the Atlantic Cod of Canada. Yes. Uh, this was. Uh, this is not something to be lightly. Uh, this is something that must be understood. It was exploited about 450 years uh, sustainably by. Uh, by a uh, fleet uh, from Europe that um, that had no access to fossil power, right? Uh, mm-hmm. they, they were sailing boats and so on. And uh, and they were exploited with traps and lines, uh, both, both type of gear requiring the fish to move. Uh, uh, if you have a line, you require the fish to bite, and a trap requires the fish to move into the trap. And this was replaced in the 50s, 60s by vessels uh, pulling pulling trawls. And uh, there is, that's the, the, net, the net that moves. It's a gear that moves. And uh, it can be deployed only when you have access to fossil energy, right? The diesel engine and so on, using petrol. And the, uh, this, uh, this uh, resource, which had been exploited sustainably for uh, 450 years, uh, and which yielded about 100 to 200,000 tons of fish per year, uh, was uh, exploited uh, by trawlers from all over Europe and uh, and even Cuba. Uh, trawlers from all over the place, uh, the, so- the then Soviet Union, Poland, Germany, France, everybody was there. And uh, within within 30, 40 years. 30 years actually it was gone and um, and uh, the the fishery had to be closed and the stock had been the biomass that is the the, the population itself which uh, which uh, which was in excess of two, two million tons uh, shrunk to about 50,000 tons or so uh, about five percent of the of its in, initial weight five percent and then or less uh, sorry one percent of its initial weight it it, mm. it was a, a mm-hmm. absolute disaster and uh, the, it was closed and now now it, it since the since the 90s it hovers hovers at uh, at very low biomasses and and the department of fisheries reopens the fishery from time to time when uh, a few cod appear and and so on this is this is a complete transformation, like uh, like uh, the buffalo in the American plains or the passenger pigeon uh, that was so abundant, uh, took hours for a flock to fly through. And um, so th- this is one crass example, but uh, most most big fish um, um, that uh, occupied the rivers and lakes and coastline, mm. like uh, like. Uh, Surgeons, for example, they are they are wiped out to or reduced to almost nothing throughout the, the entire range. Yes, yeah. 
Um, I, I, just that example you use, which is such a an important one for Canadians. Um, it's you know we're talking here about a, a country with a strong state with presumably uh, you know uh, strong regulatory powers and we did declare a 200 mile limit and yet we still decimated the cod stocks and so on so you can only imagine what it's like if you're a small African country with a weak state uh, yep. and you know so uh, I mean. Yeah. It, it, it's it's well it's it's very discouraging, isn't it, when it happens in a in a Canadian context with a strong yeah, that's, government. That's the reason why why it must be mentioned again and again because there was a there was a so-called management system, there was a, a resource that uh, the country could have lived without, so it yeah. didn't it didn't seem to depend uh, on 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 for the day-to-day -day funding of the government. On, on exploiting that stock and so on, and and so this was completely gratuitous. Yes, yeah, yeah. No. no, I yeah, it's an important example to keep keep bringing up. Um, well, thank you very much for that, and and I'd, I'd like to move on to to another uh, issue. And I'm wondering, given your extensive background in fisheries research and so on, what do you think? What do you think about the prospects of aquaculture and fish farming? become like the solution to the decline of the wild fisheries around the yeah. world? Uh, will aquaculture make up for what we've lost? Uh, and, uh, so, so when we speak of aquaculture, mm. we are not aware of the fact that we speak essentially of an Asian, Asian industry okay. and of, uh, of an industry which is globally is focused on China. Uh, China produces more than 60% of aquaculture production in the world. Yes. So we, we're talking about a Chinese industry, if you like, and um, an Asian industry. Uh, in the West, what we have, what we call aquaculture that we have, the farming of salmon, yes. is actually viewed in the context of, of aquaculture as a marginal sideshow. And, and this uh, Chinese aquaculture, or Asian aquaculture is mainly is the farming of um, uh, of animals that don't need to be fed. This is uh, largely bivalves, like mollusks, and uh, like uh, like uh, bivalves, like uh, um, mussels and, and oysters and clams and so on. Yes. You don't need to feed them, and they are a net contribution to to seafood that you have. Now, um, China also has. Uh, uh, farming of some of some um, uh, um, carnivorous fish, uh, fish that need to be fed with uh, with 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 prote animal protein, yes. and uh, it has become because of this the major importer of fish meal in the world. Ah. So China has a relative to its aquaculture a tiny tiny sector that produce fish and these fish have to be fed with with uh, fish meal and china has become 60 70 percent of the world aquaculture of the world sea sea um, uh, fish meal has to be uh, is imported by china now that is a major competition for for the western countries that uh, want to farm fish meal uh, that want to farm, um, oh sorry, I misspoke, 
perhaps you can edit it out. Uh, I uh, that want to farm um, like salmon. Uh, salmon. Yes. Salmon. Yes. So uh, what we must realize is that uh, is that salmon farming and the farming of similar carnivorous fish is not producing fish. It's consuming fish. Mm. It's cons- it consumes fish uh, that uh, are, are smaller, that uh, are anchovies and sardines and so on, that are turned into fish meal and, and produce bigger fish that uh, are marketed as more or less a luxury product. So it cannot be a replacement uh, it cannot be a replacement for fisheries because it requires fishery to be operating, catching the small fish that can be turned into fish meal. Mm-hmm. This is so aquaculture as a as a, a industry. Yes, it can feed the world, but not that aquaculture that you have that one has in mind when thinking of of salmon. Uh, only if it farms. Uh, clams and, and, and oysters and mussels and so on, can it contribute protein that uh, that are additional? Um, uh, the farming of salmon just converts protein, fish protein, into another form. Yes, yes. And and the fish that are used used to fish for to to do fish meal are not unedible fish as. Uh, the industry tells us it is sardine anchovies and mackerels and so on mm-hmm. fish that are uh, liked in many countries and that in in especially in the global south are feeding lots of people so we have a situation where aquaculture in the west or in rich countries competes for fish with uh, the the staple of poor people and that's in, it's the major issue so aquaculture mm-hmm. uh, is, is a, a good industry when you look at uh, at uh, the aquaculture of uh, the farming of herbivorous uh, uh, animals like clams and so on. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. it it is it is a challenge, a real challenge to food security when it when aquaculture is uh, is conceived as a farming of uh, of um, carnivorous fish and. And uh, there is a huge amount of propaganda on this, but they cannot deny the fact that that the conversion efficiency is is low, and so you need three three to four tons of farm two, three to four kilo of small fish to produce one kilo of of salmon. Sometimes a bit less, sometimes a bit more. But the point is that it consumes fish. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you very much for clarifying that. That's uh, that's very nice. I think that will really help people understand uh, where we're at yeah. with respect to aquaculture and fish farming. Um, it must be understood as two different sectors. Like yes. uh, a farmer can be growing wheat or, or grass or whatever, uh, it can oak or, or corn or whatever, or a farmer can raise animals. And that's fundamentally a, di- uh, a different thing. Uh, basically, you can see that it is not the same thing because you cannot, for example, say one ton of hay plus one ton of beef is two tons of what? It's, it, 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 it is not commensable. You cannot put them on the same scale. No. And you see right away that there's a problem there, right? And, yeah. and so you cannot uh, compare carnivorous fish with uh, herbivorous animals that are, uh, that are grown 
really without food input. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for that. Um, I, I'd like to move on to one further area that's uh, got a lot of attention in, re in recent times, and that is seafood certification regimes or programs. And I'm just wondering, from your point of view and, and background of your research and so on, would you say they're having a positive impact? And what do you see some of the key issues around such programs in ensuring sustainability uh, of marine species we take for so food? I was a strong advocate uh, of, the, of the Marine Stewardship Council, which is uh, the major certifying uh, body for fishery, for sustainable fisheries yeah. in Europe. And uh, in fact, before they were, were even founded, I was uh, arguing with uh, pot potential funders, and, uh, and I was at the, at the lounge of it in Westminster in the UK, and so I was uh, very strongly supportive of it. But uh, like lots of people have been um, disappointed um, over the years, about what they do, because they they began to to see this the success as certifying as many fisheries as possible, yeah. and if, and tonnage as possible, and if if if, if most of the fish uh, in the fish uh, in the world were if most of the fishery were certifiable as uh, sustainable, we we wouldn't need to be the certification program then they, everything would be fine and and to to strive to to certify as uh, many fisheries and as much tonnage as possible is uh, uh, having wrong incentives the incentive is that the certification actually support uh, the MSC and so they are not independent vis-a-vis -vis the decision that they take mm, right. and um, and this led to them being essentially captured by the industry. And so, in a, uh, as opposed to being a bridge between the, the conservation world and the, the business world, they became an agency of the business business world. And uh, and now they are in a in a position that is impregnable in terms of uh, of uh, being being industry advocates. They they certify all kinds of fisheries that are, that, are, that are not proper and they engage in all kind of weird practice that even the WWF, which found was a, a founder of, of the MSC, disapproved of. So I, uh, they have disappointed everybody, including uh, the, the very people who founded them. So do you think that, uh, though, I, I know they've received a... Uh, a number of criticisms from around different authorities and so on, and and presumably that I, I understand they're in the process of um, trying to deal with that and to uh, you know come up with uh, solutions and so on. But you're not uh, particularly positive about the prospect of that, I guess. Is, is that basically I'm, I'm uh, disappointed, uh, jilted yeah. lover or something? Yeah, uh, because. Uh, because it was a good idea who, but industry capture is, is, is real and it happens to lots of, of good initiatives, right? Yes. It happens to lots of agency, whether governmental or, or none. And I would say though that the emphasis should not be on consumer, the, the uh, 
I believe that uh, the NGO community and the uh, conservation community uh, should fight with with governments uh, that uh, they impose regulation, not with uh, spend uh, lots of resource on influencing consumers. Because <clears throat> um, let's say there is five percent of the world or or the citizen of a country that are really concerned about sustainability and are willing to to choose the right fish when they go eat yes. uh, when and they go shopping and let's say they can influence they can influence her, their friends and stuff and and so ten percent are convinced are on board how the ninety percent outside of that they they are not reached they are not reached and they cannot be reached because they cannot they cannot spend their time on making such choices. They usually live, often live in food desert anyway, they, where, where the choice is not uh, between a sustainable cordfish or an, uh, uh, another fish, but uh, the choice is fish or, or some, some bad food uh, that uh, is much cheaper. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I think this is a little bit of elitist anyway, uh, and uh, it's better to to strive to strive for a solution that involves everybody. In other words, uh, the smoking bans that we have that we enjoy now, uh, and have not been achieved by five percent convincing another five percent and then ninety percent continue to do whatever they did. It has been the five or ten percent convincing governments to pass laws that concern everybody. Yes, yes. The same thing applies to, to safety belts in cars. Mm -hmm. it, it applies to everything. Uh, you, don't, you don't try to convince people until you have uh, a majority and then, and, then, and then things are fine. In other words, you, the, the job is to convince governments to intervene. Government doesn't need to convince, really, uh, the majority of the population. It interacts with the active part of the population and the rest they go along the, if it is not uh, impossible. In the case of smoking, uh, you can see the majority of smokers were never convinced, but they, they went along with, with not polluting, polluting the air in restaurants and in buses and everywhere, yeah. and in airplanes. They went along, they were never convinced, but they, they had to go along. And, and, and I think that is that's how democracies work. You pick up issues, you convince governments that convinced or make force people to comply. Speed limits were never discussed with with, uh, with, uh, with the public at large. <laughs> to take another example, mm -hmm. uh, speed limits. I, I don't discuss speed limit with the cop when they stop me because I have speed. I'm speeding. I, I just pay a fine and that's it. You see what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. I see what you mean. I, I'm not arguing contrary to democracy here, but uh, I, I'm, I'm arguing against this naive belief that we can run fisheries from our from from restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, fisheries have to be run by government and uh, and uh, and enforced by the police and stuff uh, that when they detect criminality and so on. It's not a matter of convincing your buddy to, to order this steamed fish instead of that grilled fish. Grilled fish. Yeah, this yeah. Is, this is nonsense. If I Though this is a majority belief right now. 
Yeah, no, I, I take what you're saying as uh, very valid. I, I just, uh, I'm thinking though, in the case of fisheries, you have this vast area of the oceans that are beyond the jurisdiction of governments, uh, the high seas. So there's not much fishing there. Uh, yeah. it's, it's essentially tuna. Okay. Um, the, the nine, nine, over ninety percent of all fish is caught in the in the exclusive economic zone, oh, two hundred mile zone. Right. The sixty percent of the ocean that is past the national jurisdiction uh, also has uh, less fish than uh, it. it totally unproductive, the high sea, uh, compared with the Sahara. Uh, there is a few wow. oasis with camels and stuff, but uh, uh, it is unproductive. The ocean, the open ocean on a, on a square kilometer basis has <laughs> no fish, <laughs> almost no fish. Yeah, so it is, it is the coastal zones and so on that are yeah, really yeah. critical. Right? Yeah, that's where the action is. Yeah. And to a large extent, uh, this is now... <laughs> Because of the exclusive economic zone regime and um, the, the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, yeah. this is a national problem, fisheries, okay. national issues. Well, listen, we've uh, I think we've about run out of time, but I want to thank you so much for for taking time out of your day and uh, um, giving us some insights uh, that are very valuable and, and helping us understand. Uh, going on in the ocean, the marine environment, and, and maybe some of the solutions. So thank you very and, much. Uh, when, uh, when you have a... Uh, do send me the URL and so on. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to Edible Ocean Podcast. Tony Winson hosted and did the recruiting for the interviews. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. I also manage our Instagram, Follow us at EdibleOcean underscore podcast. Follow Professor Tony on Twitter at Industrial Diet. This podcast was made with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.